selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. BMW's most recent Formula One venture was full of unforgettable moments. For the first time in 20 years, Williams wins at Monaco. One Montoya wins at Monaco. A memorable, memorable day for everybody in the Williams BMW team. Ten victories across six seasons with Williams was impressive when you consider that Ferrari and Michael Schumacher dominated the early 2000s. BMW then bought Sauber and achieved more success as their own Formula One entity. So you can see why Mario Tyson, the company's motorsport director, wasn't expecting BMW to leave Formula One at the end of 2009. I have to say I was surprised and it was really most impressive how the team stuck together and we didn't want to finish on a low after such a successful three years. It was a sad time, but it was still something to be proud of. Hello and welcome to F1 Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. Dr. Mario Tyson is my guest this week, a brilliant engineer in his own right. He oversaw BMW's return to Formula One with Williams in 2000 and later became team principal of BMW Sauber. There was plenty of success early on. BMW Williams finished second behind Ferrari in the constructor standings in both 2002 and 2003. But best of the rest was as good as it got with Williams and relations became increasingly strained. They parted company at the end of 2005, but that wasn't the end. BMW bought Sauber to form their own team for 2006. There were podiums almost immediately, and 2008 proved to be their high-water mark, when Robert Kubica led a 1-2 at the Canadian Grand Prix to lead the Drivers' World Championship just one year after suffering a terrifying crash at the same track. Mario recalls the emotions he felt when celebrating with Kubica on the podium. And yet, just over a year later, BMW announced that they would leave Formula One. Mario tells me how surprised he was by the decision 
and how the introduction of the double diffuser at the start of that season had helped to seal their fate. He also explains why BMW returned to Formula 1 in the first place and why Sebastian Vettel was wise beyond his years, even at the start of his Formula 1 career. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Mario, it is lovely to see you again. First up, how are you keeping? Uh, I don't want to make you jealous, uh, but I really I feel really well and I'm enjoying my life. Do you still keep across things Formula 1? I have to say I'm um, I'm quite detached. Meanwhile, I watch three or four races per year, no more than that. I haven't been to a Formula One race for five or six years. I'm much more interested in historic vehicles right now than in Formula One, which is interesting because in my 30-some years with BMW, I've always worked on the, at the forefront of technology. And now I'm rather looking back I have an honorary appointment with the World Federation for Historic Vehicles, uh, FIVA, not FIFA. So um, I know that FIVA has about 1.5 million members worldwide. Wow. And it's represented in uh, some 70 some countries. So retired from the day job at BMW, but still very much involved with cars. Well, I'm a, I'm a car guy. Uh, I've, I've been a car guy from birth, and I'm afraid it won't change anymore. <laughs> well, look, let's talk BMW and Formula One, and specifically BMW's most recent foray into Formula One, 2000 to 2009, when you were the boss. How do you reflect on that decade now? Well, it was the most fascinating job I had at BMW. I have to say... Uh, the five years before that, I used to be in charge of innovation at BMW, innovation centers in Munich and Palo Alto, California. And I, I thought from here on, it, it can only go downwards in terms of job satisfaction. So I was really happy about that role. Uh, but then Formula One racing was even more fascinating. It certainly was the most intense and the most rewarding time of my professional career and it certainly it was several stages in the 10 years but uh, I'm still thrilled by it although I wouldn't want to be back there now. You had top three finishes in the Constructors Championship on six occasions. Was that a good return for you? I'm not a marketing guy and you have to ask the marketing guys about this. It certainly depends on the expectations. For a company like BMW, a premium car manufacturer, Formula One is fantastic if you win. And, uh, and it's probably the most expensive way to put yourself in the media uh, in the wrong way if you fail. And um, the expectations being with a car ma manufacturer are, really, are certainly higher than being with an independent team. That's an interesting point. Was it a marketing exercise for BMW or was it an engineering exercise? <laughs> the reason for a Formula One project is marketing. But to make it work, it's an engineering exercise. You can only market successes. And to be successful, you have to have a strong engineering side. So who paid for it? Was it the engineering division or was it the marketing division? Uh, it was the company as a whole. But the marketing guys had to say, yes, this is money well spent because the brand image benefits from it. 
God, Mary, I feel like I'm in a board meeting with you now, and you're <laughs> you're talking to me about Formula One as a as a BMW board member. But as I say, you had top three finishes in the constructors' championship on six occasions. What was BMW missing to get that final step? In the end, if if I look at the at the final years with BMW Sauber, I think we were just missing time because the team developed really successfully. We had started in 2006. Sauber was a solid midfield runner with limited resources, but an exceptional wind tunnel already at that time. And we we had quite a straightforward plan to get to the top, which meant to be in the points in 2006, to be on the podium in seven, to win the first race in eight, and to fight for the championship from 2009 onwards. And six, seven, and eight, we were absolutely on target, even ahead of target. And then 2009, there was something that changed the game completely, the double diffuser. The double diffuser was uh, meant to be illegally by most of the teams, including ours, but it was approved by FIA. That shook up the grid totally. The four front runners of 2008, which were uh, Ferrari, McLaren, ourselves and Renault, they all dived down to the midfield. Ferrari and, uh, and McLaren, most experienced teams, they recovered by mid-season, ourselves only in the last four races, and Renault never made it. So had you spotted the double diffuser as a potential loophole, the one that, of course, Braun exploited most well, successfully? we only spotted it when <laughs> Braun came with it, and it was okay. too late. But it wasn't a conversation that no, had no, been had no, in Hindu. No, 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 no. We only got aware of it when the, seasons, uh, when the, the winter test started. And do you think the double diffuser had more of a say over your performance than the, the arrival of Kurz in 2009 as well? Yes, I'd say so. Because um, it became clear to us that the double diffuser was a game changer and we had to do something. But with the car, as it was designed, it wasn't possible to apply a double diffuser. So um, halfway down the season, we decided... Actually, that was about the time when uh, the board pulled the plug on the Formula One program. We decided to do an all-new gearbox with a different design to accommodate for a double diffuser. And we brought this gearbox without having it tested on the track for the final four races. And in the penultimate race in Brazil, Robert Kubica was back on, on the podium. So that made it clear to us the double diffuser was the difference. But of course, by then, you already knew that BMW wanted out. Yeah, that's true. And that was certainly a difficult time, the second half of 2009 season. But we didn't want, after three successful years, six to eight, we were the first time behind schedule, uh, behind target, and we didn't want to finish on a low. So we took this exercise, and it was certainly a risk uh, to take an all-new gearbox without having tested it to a race straight to the race. We took this effort and it paid off. And this is why I said we were lacking time. A year like this can happen to, every, to any team and it happened to any team. Then you just have to take a new, a fresh approach for the season afterwards. And the, the team was certainly strong enough to be a front runner. 
and the drivers were strong enough to win the championship. So I think we had got there. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Bloomingdale's, Levi's, and Zappos. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. We'll come back to the end, if you like, but I'd like to now just go right back to the beginning. So it's 1999. Yourself and Gerhard Berger have been positioned by BMW to run this Formula One program. So my first question is, why did BMW choose Williams as their partner when they first came in? That was way before my time. The program was decided in 97 and uh, it was published in 97 in September at the Frankfurt Auto Show that the new Formula One a project w would be done with Williams and start in 2000. And uh, so saying it was before my time means there was uh, Karl-Heinz Kalbfell uh, at the head of BMW Motorsport, who soon became uh, Rolls-Royce CEO. And it was Paul Roche, the brilliant engine hero for decades. They had convinced the board to do the project and they had done all the work up to 99. But uh, I said already, uh, Karl-Heinz Kalbfeld moved on and uh, Paul Roche was 65 at that time. And that was exceptional for BMW already because uh, in, in those days, BMW 
the BMW upper management had to retire at 60. And so Paul was an exception already, but it, it was clear in 99, uh, when we started a, a Formula One project lasting for 10 years, there had to be imminent change. And so uh, Gerhard Berger came on board in 98. And in 99, early 99, I was called to the CEO and uh, Joachim Milberg, uh, he came straight to the point saying, it's great we have Gerhard on board because he knows Formula One inside out, but he is not an engineer and he doesn't know BMW inside out. And my idea is to put you next to him and uh, have you, the two of you run it as a double act. I have to say I was not really fond of uh, the idea, so declined it by saying uh, in nine out of ten cases a double uh, at the top doesn't work. So that was it for the time. Then two weeks later I was called again. I was just uh, in, in family ski holidays. I was called again to the CEO, rushed back home, and he simply said, I haven't really changed my mind. You can decline a job offer once, but doing it twice is probably not the best move in your career. And so I agreed to at least sit down with Gerhard and talk it through. So we had a meeting for a few hours. And after that meeting, it was absolutely clear to me that this would be the one out of 10 cases that works. Why were you so confident? Because um, the chemistry was ideal. We had the same view of almost everything. And we had complementary skills. And Gerhard is a fantastic guy. And in hindsight, uh, I can say we were a strong team, a strong couple. The time with Gerhard was the most fun in my career. He is certainly that. How important was it for you in your role that you had an engineering background? Uh, it was um, essential. And it was essential because, as we, as we said before, Formula One is an engineering exercise. You might do it for marketing reasons, but it's an engineering exercise. It only works if you've got top technology, if you are technology-wise ahead of the competition, and it takes engineers to do that. And you wanted to be able to understand what the engineers were talking about. and the, I mean, did you help with the design direction of the engines, for example? I was not involved in the specific engine design. It was Werner Lorenz and Heinz Paschen who did the engines, and they were fantastic. They were both fantastic in designing and developing the engines. But I understood what, what was going on, and I think this is important. And you could explain it to people like me yes. at the time. <laughs> <laughs> at the time yeah. And even before the Formula One program had done a race, you won the Le Mans 24 Hours with Williams in 1999. So that boded very well for the relationship, didn't it? Yeah, it was uh, actually, that was the idea of this program. It, it was sort of a warm-up program for the Formula One uh, cooperation. Actually, it was the first race in charge for me. I cannot claim much of credit for it because I came in just a few weeks before the race the car was done uh, by Williams, by John Russell and Graham Humphreys. The powertrain BMW was Ulrich Schiefer. And the team was uh, run by Charlie Lamm and the Schnitzer boys. And, uh, well, I was, I have to say, I was quite naive at that uh, 
at that point because I, I came in as a former racing fan but with no racing experience and I remember very well us, uh, us sitting at the press conference in Le Mans before the race uh, we were asked uh, about our expectations and I just said we are here to win I saw Charlie and Gerhard next to me making themselves small on their chairs <laughs> indicating that it's not, a good, not such a good idea to race the bar before you jump. But in the end, we won the race, and it was a very strong competition with five manufacturers in 1999. We won the race, and to date, it has been the only overall victory for BMW. And it got the relationship off with Williams to a brilliant start. Ah, the brilliant start. Um, <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> I think uh, Patrick had lost some hair about our start. The issue was, in we, we figured out in 99, Gerhard and myself immediately saw that the team was not ready to compete in Formula One. We had to expand the facilities, the machinery. We had to more than double the workforce in 99. We put up parts manufacturing plant even an aluminum foundry uh, dedicated to Formula One because it was clear to us you have to get this under your control if you want to be successful. But this process went on through the first season and at the first race we were not really ready. I still remember a test at Jerez in January 2000 where we went with all we had. It might have been 10 to 15 engines for a three-day test with one car. On the first day we went out, Jerez turned four, the first lap, the engine went bang. We had only one car, so it was dragged to the pits, new engine in, uh, put in, went out, turned four in lap one, bang. Oh, God. And that happened four times in a row. <laughs> and uh, I'm was sure Patrick, Patrick was wondering <laughs> what, he, what he had got into. The problem was um, uh, in the oil, oil circuit. So... Um, before day three, we ran out of engines, and I called Munich to, uh, to send us the company plane to take the 15 guys back because we didn't have any engines uh, to, uh, to test, and we had to do our homework at home in terms of uh, for reliability. That was uh, quite an experience, and we had some uh, another two or three tests before the first race. But when we went to Melbourne, we had no engine. With no engine, we had completed a race distance on the track. And with no engines, we had completed a race distance in the test bench on the dyno. Not even on the not dyno? Even, not even on the dyno. And so we went there. Jensen Button went off with an engine failure, as expected, pretty soon in the race. But Ralf Schumacher drove on. He finished the race and not only finished it, he, he finished in, in top three. He was on the podium. We, we, we just couldn't believe it. <laughs> it was so strange. <laughs> what an extraordinary yeah, story. Yeah, it was. And, uh, well, it was luck as you often see it in the first race of a season because all the, all the others are not ready either. So many cars dropped out. And it took us, I would say, the first half of the season to really get everything under control performance, reliability, and also parts, logistics, and stuff like this. Did a, a completely new engine come in for 2001? Yes. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. bit lighter, a bit more powerful? Uh, it was totally different. Uh, it was uh, more powerful. The 2000 engine started at 
750 horsepower, finished the season at 800, 17,000 RPM. And then for 2001, the P80, all new design, started at 880 and 18,000 RPM. And it was already 15 kilo lighter than the, than the 2000 engine. It became benchmark immediately in terms of power and weight. I'm talking to the engineer in you now. Where were you finding those gains? Obviously, the weight was partly, was it materials? No, it was the overall design of the engine. The 2000 engine was quite a solid piece of, uh, of machinery. And the 2001, the P80, was very aggressive compared to other engines in those days. It was the lightest one and it was the strongest one. We certainly took more risk, tapped into new ground, and we paid for it in terms of reliability in 2001, here and there. But at the end of the season and following seasons, it was under control. Uh, and the P80 was then the basic design for all the following V10s through 2005. And the power gains, were you finding those, what was it? Was it friction, fr friction losses it was that you were minimizing? It was friction, right. it was not so much fuel, but uh, certainly oil. It was combustion, it was gas exchange, so everything. What struck me most was then in the following years, 2002, 3, 4, 5, with the same basic engine layout, we were able uh, to further drop the weight uh, to 80, 86 kilos, something like this, to increase horsepower to 940 at 19,000 RPM. What struck me most uh, was that at the same time, the engine, engine life had to be extended. It had to be quadrupled. Uh, we used an engine of 2000 and 2001 was good for 400K. Race distance plus warm-up. So we went to a race with uh, three engines per car. One for Friday, one for Saturday, one for Sunday. Friday and Saturday, the practice sessions were about 200K per day. So we could use the Saturday engine for the Friday at the next event, reuse it. But the race engine was gone after the race. And uh, together with unlimited testing, this was an unbelievable uh, amount of material. How many engines would you have used, let's say, in 2001? Uh, I don't remember this figure, um, but it was certainly more than 100. Because, uh, as I said, two to three per race weekend per car times two is, uh, is five to six. And then uh, unlimited testing and the, the, uh, the engines on the dyno back home. And, and can we talk budgets? It was certainly, certainly the, the first year was the most expensive, 2000. Because for reliability reasons and because we were new, we had to do as much testing as possible. So we used the most engines in 2000 and it certainly dropped then by becoming more reliable, becoming more experienced and also by limitations that were put in by the regulations. So um, I think it was 2003 when the engine had to last two races already and then it, it went up to four races. So. This, together with uh, test limitations, brought down the number of engines we used per year significantly, and uh, so the costs dropped. 
it seems to me those early years, those early naughty years, 2000, 2001, one, two, was probably the most expensive era for engine manufacturers in Formula One. Uh, yes, certainly, definitely right. I don't know what happened before 2000, but with no limits, the manufacturers could spend as much as, as they want, and they did. But equally, were you spending anything like as much on engines as Toyota were at the time, or Honda? Or um, no, I'm, I've never got figures from them. I only heard that they uh, did even double the amount of what, <laughs> yeah. what the Europeans did. They probably did more because especially Toyota had two parallel programs running in Cologne and in Japan. And uh, that must have been even more expensive. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Bloomingdale's, Levi's, and Zappos. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. So Maria, how would you describe the relationship between Munich and Grove? during those that Williams era. Did you feel that you were just the engine supplier or were you involved in the design of the chassis and you know installing the engine? Were there Williams engineers in Munich and were there BMW engineers in Grove? For no, example? it was quite, it was more or less a separate uh, two separate activities. Of course we were involved in engine installation uh, but not in the chassis not at all. And um, it worked quite well because 
The Williams guys were professional. They were used to uh, work with engine suppliers. And um, we didn't have a clue of chassis design and development. So there was no try from both sides to, to get into the other field. It was quite good, some joking. Uh, the, the Williams mechanics called our engine the Spacer. <laughs> And, but they were paid back by similar jokes from our guys. <laughs> and did you have a say on driver lineup? We were heard, yes, and we offered our opinion, but the decision was always with Frank. Juan Pablo Montoya from Colombia is going to win his 15th Grand Prix by, I would estimate, about five seconds from the Ferrari of Rubens Barrichello out of the Parabolica. Down goes the accelerator. He can almost see the chequered flag. Now there it is. Montoya wins in Italy at Monza for Williams and BMW. After the 2000 season, Jensen Button had had a Phenomenal debut in Formula One. But Juan Pablo Montoya comes in in 2001. What were you feeling at that moment about whether to keep Button or were you happy for Montoya to come um, in? I didn't know Montoya. I knew, certainly knew Jensen after one season. And I, I found it a bit sad to see him go because he was such a young guy uh, and he performed uh, over expectations in 2000. But... As I said, it was Frank's decision, and uh, as we didn't know Montoya at all, uh, we didn't get into it. I even was invited by Frank, I think, I think it was a meeting in Toronto where he met Montoya for the first time uh, at the occasion of, our, of the Canadian Grand Prix. I was there. I don't know if, I don't remember if Gerhard was there well, as well. And, well, the meeting went on, and Frank decided to sign him. And he was obviously big in North America, Montoya. He'd won the, you know, the Champ Car Championship. Was that important? Was that market important for you, the fact that he had a big name over there? Not for BMW, no. Actually, we didn't really interfere with that uh, because, yes, Montoya was a big name in the US, but the Formula One was not. So <laughs> if he was in Formula One, the Americans wouldn't care. And, and that partnership of Ralph Schumacher and Juan Pablo Montoya, where would you place it on the grid at the time? Did you think you had one of the strongest driver lineups? I think so, yes. Sometimes as strong uh, that they got together. <laughs> <laughs> I remember it not being the easiest relationship between the two of them. No, but if you have two, two drivers competing at the highest level and you are with a team that smells the chance to win the first race, uh, of course, they would go for it. Both would go for it. And uh, no, I think it really was maybe the strongest driver lineup as a combination. Who can forget Montoya's overtake of Michael Schumacher at Interlagos in 2001 at the restart? He was such an impetuous driver, wasn't he? He could just, unpredictable, and, and that was part of his magic, wasn't it? So Montoya is challenging for the championship right up until the end of the 2003 season. At that point, were you starting to have thoughts about wanting your own Formula One team? We didn't actually want, our, want to have our own Formula One team, but we wanted to win the championship. And uh, certainly losing out in 2003, both the manufacturers and the drivers' championship, 
that was sort of a turning point. So in 2004, there were the first discussions at BMW how to proceed. And, uh, well, in 2005, the decision was taken uh, to go for an own team. Now, in 2004, if, if the discussions were already going on here in Munich, I remember a controversial race. I think it was Montreal when both cars got disqualified for, was it brakes? I think it was brakes. I imagine that didn't go down well <laughs> in the corridors of power. I wouldn't say that, no. It's certainly not with me, because things like that can happen. It was not a deliberate uh, cheating, it was a mistake. And that can happen if you always uh, squeeze to the limit. It wasn't, there's an expression in English, it wasn't, that wasn't the straw no, that, that no, broke no, the cat. No, no, no okay. it was not. And how were relations with Williams in the end? Uh, well, apparently, uh, when the decision was taken to go for an own team in 2006, that was by mid-2005, after the overseas races, then apparently the situation was quite difficult. The relationship was difficult, which, which is clear to me uh, for both sides. We were racing with Williams for another seven, eight races. Uh, we were at the same time already investing in the new Sauber factory, in the expansion of the factory. We were talking away from the racetrack. We were talking to Sauber people already. Uh, that this was difficult for Williams is absolutely clear. And of course, it was quite a tense relationship in those months. But I have to say, always professional from both sides. And was Sauber the only team you looked at buying or were there others as well? No, not seriously. We really focused on Sauber. Was the proximity to, to Munich important to you? It was not a decisive factor, but it, I think it helped in the end because uh, if you have two equal parts of a team, each part being some 400 people strong, it helps to be close to each other. The closer, the better. Uh, it wasn't possible and was never in the intention to put everything in one place, but uh, with three hours driving between it, uh, that worked quite well, and it was not decisive, but it helped. Now, as the boss, BMW Motorsport Director, how did having your own team change your job description? Uh, quite a lot, apparently. <laughs> On one hand, uh, I got more responsibility, uh, responsibility for the entire team in Munich and in Hinwil. On the other hand, it made it easier because uh, we could arrange the team, the team structure, the way we wanted it, uh, all put in place, all the, the, the processes we wanted to have and uh, the right people, which was, in the end, a homogeneous approach, as opposed to having two teams, two independent teams who cooperate with each other. Uh, makes a big difference uh, in terms of workload, and I had more responsibility but it wasn't necessarily more difficult. And in terms of budgets, I think I know the answer to this, given what you've already said, but did it cost BMW less money to have its own team than it did to be an engine supplier yes, to Williams? Yes, it cost us less money. So bang for your buck, this was a good move. Uh, in, in financial terms, uh, definitely. I mean, there were two effects uh, which uh, have to be looked at separately. One effect was, as discussed before, the 
limitations on engine use and tests, which brought down the cost on the engine side. But the uh, bigger effect was that with the, the own team, we also got the sponsoring money and the TV money. So the team more or less financed itself without additional money. And uh, certainly the Sauber years were less expensive for BMW than the Williams years. What about the atmosphere at Hinville compared to, to Williams or any British team for that matter? Is it? I've always wondered how different it is. And because of the location in Switzerland, does it make it harder to lure talent from the UK? Or, or, or do you have people bashing your door down because Switzerland is a, a beautiful place? Uh, different questions. Uh, the atmosphere, you cannot really compare because Sauber became part of BMW. That is totally different from being two independent companies. So it was clear that there was a, a common team approach, a common understanding of the own role. It's certainly more difficult to take on people, uh, engineers who work in UK for, an, for a British team to come to Hinwheel than to have them switch between two UK teams where, we, where they wouldn't even have to move. But once people have arrived, uh, my experience is that they stay, that they are not looking to go elsewhere because the environment is good and uh, it is maybe a bit isolated from the rest of uh, Formula One, uh, but also less hectic, less tempting to do something else. I didn't see it as a handicap, rather an advantage. And what is the culture at BMW? Is it to promote from within? Because I'm just looking at a list of names now. You, you, you had some proper talent that you generated yourself. I look at Andreas Seidel. He's the CEO of what is going to be the Audi Formula One team. Mike Crack, team principal of Aston Martin. Willie Ramph, who until very recently has worked on more Formula One teams than I've had hot dinners. And, and then, of course, Franz Toss, the team principal of um, Alpha Tauri. You had a lot of talent within. Were you almost looking to promote that rather than bring in people from outside? That is a general approach at BMW. We have always uh, preferred to grow people uh, from inside. The only exception was the early years, 1999, 2000, 2001, because the team had to grow very rapidly and we didn't have Formula One experience uh, inside BMW. So we had to take on a lot of people which made it difficult in the early years. But the names you mentioned show that, especially at BMW Sauber, we had a really strong team. Those guys are, are leading uh, Formula One teams now, <laughs> uh, three or four of them, which is just proof of the capacity we had. And this is why I said before, we were missing time. We, it would have taken one or two or maybe three more years to get to the top, but I'm still convinced we would have got there. We're going to come to that. First, can I ask you about drivers? So when you took over Sauber, did you try and get Montoya and Ralph Schumacher to come with you? Or, I mean, I think Montoya was already engaged at McLaren at the time. Ralph was on his way to Toyota, wasn't he? He was already there. Did you try and get them to come with you to continue the journey? No, no, because Montoya was elsewhere already. I didn't have him on the, uh, the screen anymore. Ralph had made it clear to me that he wanted to go to Toyota when we still were with uh, Williams. 
and it didn't make sense uh, to ask him to switch again. Uh, the situation was Jacques Villeneuve was there already. He still had a contract for 2006. And I was keen to take along Nick Heidfeld, who used to be with us at Williams in 2005. So from this stint, he knew the BMW guys. And before going to Williams, he used to be with Sauber. So he knew the Swiss guys as well. For me, the perfect fit for the new team. Of course, he was quick as well. So it was clear that we would start with um, Jacques and Nick. And uh, the tricky thing, the most tricky thing was to hire a test driver because it was end of 2005 already. There were test restrictions in place and we were not able to put a driver, a test driver, uh, in a car before signing him. It was a, a window of only two or three weeks. So we were looking at Robert, Robert Kubica, who at least I had seen racing once, which was at uh, the F3 race in Macau, end of 2005. He didn't have a winning car, but he looked to me very determined and quick. And so we took the risk signing him without having seen him in our car. That was perfect. It paid off. He was very strong. He replaced Jacques Villeneuve halfway down the season. And in only his third race in Monza, he was on the podium already. So that was great. And of course, we needed a test driver again. <laughs> and that became Sebastian Vettel then. He, of course. He, uh, who had, had been with BMW in the early years of his career already. Kubitz's podium in Monza proved it was the right decision. But how difficult was it to make the call to move Jacques Villeneuve sideways? Uh, it was not difficult because um, I had talked open to Jacques before the beginning of the season. I said, look, you have got the contract. We will honor the contract. But it, it will depend on performance and results. So it was clear to him that there might be a situation like it then uh, evolved with us preferring to have uh, Robert in the car. And so it was not that much of a surprise for him. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Bloomingdale's, Levi's, and Zappos. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. 
From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. Sebastian Vettel, the 19-year-old, making his debut in a good car, in a very competitive situation. BMW looking very strong at the moment, and he's done already one and a half Grand Prix distances during the course of free practice, so he's fully up to speed. And now we'll see what he's made of in qualifying. Let's talk about Vettel. He becomes the test driver, of course. I remember he made his Grand Prix weekend debut. I think it was Turkey, 2006. What impressed you? Sebastian impressed me uh, way earlier. I met him first, or he, he met me first, at the age of 14 in the Formula One paddock. He was ripping my shirt and saying, I'm Sebastian, next year I'll be with you in Formula BMW. And in fact, he was there. Formula BMW was the strongest junior formula in those days. We took on drivers at the age of 15 already, not 16, but 15. So he he came on board and uh, in his first season, he became rookie champion right away. And in his second season, he won 18 out of 20 races. One second place, one third place. And I had a very close relationship with him in those days. He showed me his, uh, his approach. Um, he, he even visited us at home and we, we did some running at five in the morning. He took record of every test he did at the age of 16. Unbelievable. Uh, and he was really professional and uh, determined. So wise beyond his years, really? Yeah, way beyond his years. Yeah, and uh, so I knew what he, what sort of a guy he was, and um, he did Formula Renault and something else in between. But we had an agreement with Red Bull, both BMW and Red Bull sponsored. Sebastian helped him through his career. And so when the opportunity arose with our team, he became our test driver. Were you happy sharing him with Red Bull? Yes, absolutely. Red Bull was, I have to say, they, they looked after Sebastian even earlier, even in his karting years. And so it was clear that we could only join and would only, uh, were happy to join and educate him on BMW and on Red Bull side. I even remember in his Formula BMW days, uh, we had quite a good education program for all the drivers, which he took part in. At the same time, Red Bull had something similar, which he took part in, in as well. And so he was, 
He was very keen to learn and uh, very well educated and prepared for the next step when he took it. Because I think a lot of people were wondering at the time, he, he makes his Formula One debut with you guys at Indianapolis, the US Grand Prix 2007, replacing Robert Kubica, who was injured at the time. But then two races later, or Hungarian Grand Prix, he's in a Red Bull car. And I think a lot of people struggle to get their head around how he could have made his debut with you and then a couple of months later been in a, in a Toro Rosso. Yeah. Well, uh, the explanation is really the joint programs of Red Bull and BMW. Of course, we could have offered him a race, a race seat as well. But that was not the right move in my way because in 2007, we were close to becoming a winning team. We were quite strong already and we had high expectations for 2008. And with Nick and Robert, we had a strong team. At that time, uh, Sebastian was a 19-year-old kid. And it was too risky, in my view, to put him in the car instead of one of the two experienced drivers. So uh, it was only natural not to block him, uh, but let him take the chance with Red Bull or Toro Rosso at that time. Okay, so, so the opportunity was there. If you'd wanted to give him a race yes, seat, he course. would have raced a BMW. Okay. Did you have him on a bungee back to you? You know, like, could you have had him back at a later date? There was nothing contractual. No, 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 no. There never was a contract between Red Bull and BMW. It was um, just uh, a handshake agreement. In Formula One? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I still remember when we, when uh, Formula BMW was racing as a sport race of Formula One, I had to do all the negotiations with Bernie. And BMW always needed a written contract of what we did because uh, that's proper business but i only i only got the contract when the season was over <laughs> <laughs> everything was on a handshake yeah. <laughs> that is what a wonderful story but also bernie was a massive bmw fan wasn't he he'd had bmw power plants in his brabham's hadn't he of course in the 80s won world championships with brabham so i'd like to think he treated you guys well uh yeah i can't complain i can't complain uh, one has to say, though, that Formula BMW was, really was the top junior series in those days. And um, Bernie saw this as a good addition to the Formula One weekend program. Now, can I ask you about, oh, it makes me shiver just thinking about it, but Montreal 2007 was one of the most horrific moments I've witnessed in 25 years. Oh, that's a big accident for uh, Kubica and a horrible accident going on there. He's moving his hands and uh, obviously safety car will be out again. But, uh, he must have tangled with somebody in the braking area into the uh, hairpin. Kubica then, a lot of energy going on in that impact. Let's hope that Robert Kubica is okay. The track marshals are down there. It's on the run down to the hairpin and he's hit the wall on the right-hand side there on the run, the braking zone. They break from 190 miles an hour down to just 40 miles an hour there. So that's the sort of speed that Kubica would have been traveling at when that accident happened. 2007 and 2008 were the two most extreme experiences I had in my, my time in Formula One. 2007, we were quite strong, especially on this track already. And 
Robert tangled with Jano Trulli, approaching the hairpin, and it was it really was the most horrendous crash I've ever seen. And I was shocked, sitting at the pit wall, watching it on the screen. That's the thing. It was all being played out live on TV because there have been other hor- horrific accidents in Formula One while I've been involved, but they haven't been seen by the world feed. This was happening in front of us and the violence of that accident. I was really not sure if someone could get out alive of, of this crash and we didn't really have uh, a lot of information, no reliable information. Robert was taken to the medical center and then straight to the hospital. So right after the race, we rushed to the hospital to find him sitting in his bed with no apparent injuries, fully conscious. And his first question was, can I race in Indianapolis next weekend? Unbelievable. So it was such a relief. What was your reaction, by the way, when he said that? Uh, I said, I'd love you to race, but it doesn't depend on us. You need clearance from the doctor. And uh, that, that's how it went. Uh, he joined the team in Indianapolis on Thursday, and I, I went to him to see the doctor, and the doctor didn't clear him for the race because he thought it would be too big a risk if, if something happens again after, after only a few days. Did you see any change in Robert when he came back for the French Grand Prix two weeks later? Nothing. I mean, he finished fourth, one place ahead of his teammate. Yeah. But... No, he's... Uh, and that was... Um, what I saw when we, before we hired him as a test driver already, very determined and uh, I don't find the right word for it, but there was nothing that could really shock him. That was my impression. This is where he had his enormous accident last year that many people thought might have killed him. He went on his head at 185 miles an hour. It put him out for a race or two, but he bounced back. This season he has been flawless. He's been on the podium on three occasions already. He's yet to unlock the first victory, but it's coming now here in Montreal where Lewis Hamilton took his first win 12 months ago. Robert Kubica heads a BMW 1-2. Robert Kubica wins in Canada. He takes the lead in the Drivers' World Championship and a star is well and truly born. Robert, bravo, bravissimo, bravissimo. That's an historical win, Robert. So when we go back to Montreal in 2008 and you get that one-two, Kubica ahead of Heidfeld, I mean, describe what that meant to you. It was the highlight of our BMW Sauber time, apparently. Um, We had shown from the beginning of the season the car was a winner. We would be in a position to win the race uh, that season. And uh, then... When it happened in Montreal, admittedly, it happened due to a a really curious incident in the pit lane when Lewis Hamilton uh, bumped into Kimi's car, clearing the way for our drivers. But, I mean, sometimes you need some luck. And it was really rewarding to see both drivers winning the race 1-2. The team was over the moon. We tried to organize a party Sunday evening, but... (laughs) They all were so tired. We just had two or three beers and went to bed. <laughs> and of course, how was the one-two received here in Munich? Obviously, it was a breakthrough. It was clear to BMW that it was the right move to be in Formula One, and especially the marketing guys. It was really big here in Munich. 
and obviously uh, you get clapped on uh, on your shoulder if that happens, but it doesn't help you in the next season anymore. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Bloomingdale's, Levi's, and Zappos. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. Kubica was leading the championship after Montreal. Were you starting to dream of winning the world championship in 08 at that point? Of course. I mean... If you are not uh, ambitious to win the championship in such a position, it's the wrong place to be. Uh, so, of course, we were aiming at winning the championship. And um, Robert certainly, uh, at least as much as the team itself, the entire team. And that was there were some months from Montreal onwards uh, to the end of the season where I had the first time disputes with Robert because um, we were, in parallel to the uh, 2008 car, we were preparing for 2009 with the curse system. And Robert was always suspicious that we took resources away from uh, developing the current car. I have to say, we did more development on the 2008 car during the season than the years before, but it didn't pay off as much as the years before. So what we brought in the second half of the season didn't have the, uh, the expected effect. So it, it didn't make the car as quick as had been necessary to win the championship. But still, 
Montreal 2008 clearly was the highlight. I find it extraordinary, given the high of Montreal 2008 and all the podiums you got that season as well, that just 12 months later, the decision was made to withdraw from Formula One. I, I appreciate the financial crisis. And of course, it wasn't only BMW that withdrew at the end of 2009, but Toyota did, Honda did. But you guys were at the front and they hadn't been at the front. Can you just talk us through the decision and how surprised you were by it? I have to say I was surprised. It was a board decision that was taken in the summer break. I think it was right after the Hungarian Grand Prix. In 2009? In 2009, yes. I was informed the day before it was published in a press conference, no more than that, uh, which I understand because if you discuss it on, on board level and the team gets involved, uh, it will become an emotional thing. And the board claimed the reason to be a strategic shift of corporate strategy. Apparently, the media didn't buy it. Some said... They are running out of money and we didn't have a winner due to the double diffuser. But as you said already, progress in Formula One is never linear. And I've always thought of BMW as racers who would have understood that. The marketing guys are no racers. <laughs> yeah. No, it is. Um, it certainly played a role. I mean, if we had led the championship by mid-season 2009, no one had pulled the plug, of course. But uh, looking back how the company has changed in the past 10 years or 15 years, certainly the strategic issue was the real reason. And if we had won the championship in 2009, I'm sure the plug would have pulled immediately, would have been pulled immediately saying, yes, target achieved, let's leave. So in my view, it was only a question of a few months. Really interesting. You think there was no long-term vision in Formula One. It was either we win and we leave or we lose. Due we to leave. the uh, strategy shift, it wasn't that important anymore to be in Formula One. Certainly not my idea, but I, I had to live with it. And uh, it was not an easy time because I had to tell the media that Formula One is something super for BMW up to the end of the, uh, the season, but not, uh, not beyond. I had to keep the team motivated, not knowing if I could guarantee them a job in the year after. Some would lose the job. Uh, and it was, it was really most impressive how the team stuck together and how the team pushed. I mentioned before that we did a, an all-new gearbox for the uh, last four races. Uh, that was quite an act and a risk and uh, it paid off just because we we didn't want to finish on a low after such a successful three years it was difficult it was a sad time the second half of the season but it was still something to be proud of and how involved did you get in the sale of the team i remember there was talk of was it quad back an investment group were, were going to buy the team and then they weren't going to buy the team and eventually Peter Sauber buys the team back. Did you get involved in all of those discussions? Uh, no, that was handled by the M&A division of BMW. Um, I was certainly uh, involved as an insider of the team, uh, giving my views and my experience, but I was not part of the decision making. 
and I'm happy I was not because this is a different field. Uh, it's 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 not about racing. It's about buying and selling companies completely. It's not my expertise. Did you consider staying on in Formula One or with BMW leaving, you knew that you would be leaving too? I knew I'd be leaving because I've been a, a BMW man all my professional life. I didn't want to switch. I didn't want to leave the company. I completely agree with you, Mario, that you just needed a bit more time and it would have come. Have you had those conversations with the right people since then? I'd, I'd love to know what the board thinks now, all these years on, about the decision to withdraw. The board, there is not one single member of the board still active from those days. The current board has never thought about it because it was way before that time. I've always wondered, is there a herd mentality among manufacturers with Mercedes there, with Audi coming in, with Ford coming in, Alpine there already? Do you get to a, a tipping point where the board might just think we have to be there? We're conspicuous by our absence. Um, maybe. I don't know. I have no indication uh, right now that there are thoughts uh, about this, but uh, never say never. So, Mario, in conclusion, highs, lows, give me a high and a low. A high and a low. I mean, or, or have you actually answered that with Montreal 2007 and Montreal 2008? Yes, exactly. Montreal 2007 was the most difficult point, the most difficult situation, but only for a few hours. And Montreal 2008 was the absolute top of the tops for a few hours again. And that's something uh, that sets Formula One apart from, let's say, long distance racing. Going to Le Mans means uh, not 24 hours, but 40 hours. The race starts on Saturday morning, the race day, and uh, finishes late Sunday. And after that, you are done mentally and physically. And you still think for the next three or four days, you think about the race. In Formula One, one hour after the race, everything has been torn down already, and uh, everybody thinks about the next race. This is really different, and so even if you have a success like 2008 in, in Montreal, the feeling doesn't last for long. The next challenge is right ahead of you. How different was the feeling you got in Montreal 2008 compared to Imola 2001, the first victory with Williams? It was different in the way that we had gone there on our own, whereas uh, Imola 2001 mainly was a Williams achievement. And that, that makes certainly a difference. We, we were happy. We were really over the moon to be the winners in, uh, in Imola. But our contribution was only part of the whole. Whereas 2008, you were everything. Well, look, Mario, thank you so much for your time. It's been brilliant to see you again and just to relive what was a fantastic decade with BMW and Formula One. Thank you, Tom. It was... Uh, I, I really enjoyed it myself because it, it brought so many memories back to my mind, which I hadn't thought about for years. Great. Thank you. And there were some great memories, Mario. 
I love this chat for many reasons, partly because I lived and worked through these BMW years and Mario answered some nagging questions that I still had about BMW's most recent foray in F1. But I also loved it because Mario remains very engaging and his memory of events is crystal clear. And it's hard to disagree with his viewpoint that the highs and lows of their decade in Formula One both occurred in Montreal. Mario, many thanks for your time. It was great to see you again. Now, as ever, please send me your thoughts and stories about Mario. What did you make of BMW's return to Formula One in the early noughties? Who was your favorite BMW driver? What did you make of their decision to leave Williams and go alone in 2006? Let me know through the usual means. I'm at Tom Clarkson F1 on Twitter or use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. Now, what about last week's show with Valtteri Bottas? It was great to get VB back on the pod and I found it fascinating to get his take on life at Alfa Romeo and away from the racetrack. Our virtual mailbag was overflowing after this one. And here are just a few of your messages. Let's start with this from Ramiro. Always enjoy Valtteri's interviews. He seems like a genuinely happy guy. I love his willingness to help his teammate and I wish him the best in the races to come. Also, if his gin is anything like his coffee, I'm sure it'll be quite good. Well, Valtteri doesn't muck about when it comes to coffee or gin, Ramiro, so I'm sure you're right. Thanks for the note, by the way. And what about this from Amit Mandalia? Enjoy the latest Beyond the Grid with Valtteri Bottas. I met him at a fan forum in his Williams days and also have a signed piece of Williams' front wing flap from him and teammate Pastor Maldonado from 2013. Definitely need to get a bottle of Oath Gin just for a try. Well, great to hear from you, Amit. And yes, Valtteri is a great guy, something that he proves time and time again. And finally, let's hear this from Sam Penny. Valtteri truly is a new man since joining Alpha. Everything about him oozes, an extremely chill but determined man. I'd love to have a gin with him. VB, the offer is there. <laughs> well, I agree with you, Sam. Chilled but determined. And uh, I'm sure he'd love to have a gin with you. Why not? Look, we're going to leave it there for this week's messages. But thank you to everyone who wrote in. We love hearing from you. And don't forget to send in your thoughts and stories about Mario Tyson in time for next week's show. And before I go, here's a quick bit of cross promotion. Our F1 Nation review of the Miami Grand Prix is available to listen to now. I'm joined by Pedro De La Rosa and Eric Van Haren to reflect on that brilliant win by Max Verstappen. Search your podcast app for F1 Nation. And Miami was the first of three races in the US this season with Las Vegas and Austin still to come. And if you're wondering why there are so many Grand Prix in the USA this year, then make sure you listen to the latest episode of our new Formula Y podcast, asking that exact question. Search for Formula Y to find the show. So thank you for listening. I'll be back next week with another great guest from the world of Formula One. Beyond the Grid is produced by Formula One and Audio Boom Studios. Until next time, keep it flat out. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. 
From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice, and Molina makes it easy. So let's talk about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. Visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. 